Old powers waken, shadows stir, an age of wonder and terror will soon be upon us, an age for gods and heroes. The glass candles are burning, and you're listening to the Obsidian Nights Podcast. Hello, my sweet summer children. Welcome back to the Obsidian Nights podcast, where we go through books chapter by chapter. Today's special guest is sweet summer family member, Rui. What's up, Rui? Would you like to let the people know who you are and where they can find you? Hey, guys. My name is Rui. You can find me on Twitter at RentWare. And that's about it. You're just a big A Song of Ice and Fire fan, right? Yeah, I love A Song of Ice and Fire. I was so happy when I found your channel because oh, thank you. it was just like people were just talking a lot, but you jumped like right into it. And I agree <laughs> with almost everything you said. <laughs> thank you so much. So today we will be covering John 3. So John Snow and Tyrion have made it to the wall. And this is our first real look at the interworkings of the Night's Watch and the Wall. Um, one thing I like about John's chapters is that he's so far removed from the Southern politics. Like he's on a very different path up in the North at like the edge of the world. And I, I like that about John's chapters. Like when you get all of this stuff with Cersei and Arya and Sansa and Ned all in the South, and then you get taken right back up to the North you kind of like the prologue is in the back of your head, kind of like that. Oh, that's where those white things, those uh, white walker things were. <laughs> so that's always in the back of my mind when I read a John chapter. But what is it that um, like what were your initial thoughts on John three? John three as a whole. This is one of my favorite chapters of John. I felt like this chapter had almost everything it had comedy. It had these. Uh, it had these situations that you can even apply to real life, and it kind of put the plot points that you know that John's future will be. Something else I actually like is that it kind of shows you John's point of view and how it doesn't really match up with reality. Yes, yes, I say that like with all of the Star Kids, right? they all have like this messed up view on reality. And I think Arya probably is the one that like, like Sansa has these songs and Bran has these stories and Jon Snow thought the Night's Watch was going to be something different than it actually was. And then like Arya is just kind of over there living. <laughs> like she doesn't have any expectations of anything. She's just kind of right. Like, and, and something else that kind of comes up, I know you mentioned it a lot, but you also kind of see of like that, that stark arrogance that, you know, they kind of think they're better than everyone. Yes. Yeah. Cause that's what John thinks. I mean, John is better than the people that he's fighting against, but also John's been raised in a castle. He's been trained by a master at arms. So like you should be, but yeah, yeah that, I agree. That, that entitlement kind of thing. I, I, I totally get it. I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, so, kind of like he lords over everyone with privilege. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's what he does. But he like, he gets checked, which is good. Like he gets checked in this chapter. Um, Alistair Thorne. We're going to talk about Sir Alistair Thorne because he's a pain in the ass. He starts mocking Jon Snow, like calling him Lord Snow. <laughs> and it's like yeah. a it's a shot directly at like I know Alistair Thorne isn't a good person but calling him Lord Snow is like kind of highlights even further like that entitlement that Jon Snow has like oh I'm the son of Ned Stark and I'm coming here to be a to win glory and be gallant and you guys aren't you guys aren't as good with as a sword you guys aren't as good with a sword as I am and yeah, I, he does. Yeah. Also, when he calls him that, I feel that like it's also a shot at John because 
just Lord Snow. It's pretty much a combination of what he believes he'll never be and what he is, which is kind of lowers him in society as a whole. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, because he does want to be a lord. And the, um, John has like this dream of being Lord of Winterfell. Like he's always wanted to be that. And like, like fast forward all the way to Dance of Dragons, Stannis offers him that and he declines it. But it, it's total mockery and it's total like foreshadowing. Like you'll never be a lord, but you are a bastard. You are a snow. Remember that. <laughs> it's pretty much him just being, uh, Thorn just being petty. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Seriously petty. Petty Betty. Alistair Thorne is an interesting character though. Like he, he's not just mean to John. Like he's mean to everyone. Yeah, and- like he's so miserable. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't want to be there. The only reason he's there is because he was loyal to House Targaryen during the war and he took the black. Mhm. So, you know something that always interests me about uh Thorn is that he doesn't want to be there. John doesn't want to be there. So, I always wonder is he kind of like a reflection to John how John could have been if he was just miserable all the time. Like if he never found a purpose. Like yeah, he like he never found does. a purpose in the Night's Watch. I feel like John could have easily, you know, just been like a mean asshole. Like he's already, you know, he acts like he's better than everyone. Thorne yeah. kind of thinks the same way. <laughs> and I mean, all John needs is like to just be so miserable. I can see him acting like Thorne. Well, I guess over the years... It, like luck, luckily for John, like he becomes Lord Commander and he gets to go on rangings with the wildlings and all of this uh, interesting thing, like interesting stuff. And the, the like when I look at the relationship between Jon Snow and Alistair Thorne, knowing that R plus L equals J, I'm like, okay, so you are a Targaryen loyalist and this is a Targaryen and you're treating him like shit is like ah, his family is the reason you supporting his family is the reason you're at this wall. <laughs> Irony. <laughs> so, right. Do you think he would have been any different had he known John was a Targaryen or suspected? Honestly, I probably think he would have hated him even more. <laughs> <laughs> like no. it would have been more personal <laughs> yes i agree i agree 100 like, percent. like as now he doesn't have like a, a truly concrete reason of course i'm sure he blames you know robert and uh you know Ed, ned but yeah. it's like if he knew john was a target it's like okay i served your family my family served your family for years and look what my loyalty has gotten you well right. got me yeah, I think you're right. I think he dislike him even more. Um, speaking of dislike, John really dislikes <laughs> Castle Black and the Night's Watch and all of it. Um, I want to read this quote. No one had told him the Night's Watch would be like this. No one except Tyrion Lannister. The dwarf had given him the truth on the road north, but by then it had been too late. John wondered it. John wondered if his father had known what the wall would be like. He must have, he thought. The on- that only made it hurt the worse. So John is dealing with a lot of shit. Like he's arguably at one of the most uncomfortable uncomfortable places in Westeros at the edge of the world. Like he's found out that he's been lied to uh, his whole life about what the Night's Watch actually is. Like Ned didn't even tell him, you know, basically where he was going and or just tell him the truth of the of the place that he's committed to for the rest of his life. And then also you have um Benjen up there being all cold to him and distant <laughs> and not really like like not even acting like his uncle. Yeah. That part I understood it because it, it actually amused me. It reminded me because, you know, in this chapter, John was trying to, you know, be a ranger without actually being named a ranger. Mm-hmm. And he thought, oh, Ben is my uncle. I can do that. It reminded me of uh, 
when you start at like a new school and you have an older sibling and you think you can hang out with their friends. <laughs> yeah. That's what I kind of saw with, you know, John trying to, you know, oh, let me sit my Uncle Benjamin during meals and, you know, act like I'm a ranger because I can fight already. It was just funny to me. Yeah, that is fun. It is a good analogy, though. So, um, Benjamin basically is like, John, you're like, a green boy like you don't know what the hell you're doing here you don't like whatever you get on the wall you earn and I kind of get where Benjen is coming from but at the same time like that is your that is your uh your nephew like that is your blood and I think at this time when this chapter was written um, George was still probably on his original outline, which Catelyn and Arya were supposed to run to winter, uh, run to the wall to seek refuge with John. And John kind of doesn't like want to get involved in that because of his oath to the Night's Watch. And I think like Benjen is kind of was kind of foreshadowing for that but it, then it never then he changed his mind on what he was doing yeah I can see that that makes a lot of sense and I agree with you said like I can see why Benjamin's being a little cold but you know what I I do see his point of view because I think he doesn't want John to depend on him yeah uh, too much because at the end of the day you know you're gonna have to kill the boy <laughs> and become a man <laughs> yes so he wants him to try and find his own way. But on the other hand, I'm not too surprised he acts like that because, as we know, Starks are terrible at conveying things. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, I'm glad that even though John was treated like that, that he didn't turn around and treat other people like that. You know what I mean? Like, he he helped Sam... He made friends instead of just being like, you know, I'm just here to do my bid and, and be done with it. Kind of like the hard men that he's meeting and interacting with, like uh, Donald Noy uh, and Sir Alistair Thorne and um, even Benjen, like Benjen's coldness to him. Like that doesn't change who John is as a person because... And he doesn't try to follow that. And I like that. I do too. It, it, like, it, it shows a lot about his character and the type of person he is and pretty much how you think he can be in the future. I feel like he has the potential to be a very great man. Yeah, he does. And he is going to be like, spoilers. <laughs> spoilers. <laughs> um, when you get into like A Storm of Swords and I mean, even A Clash of Kings, all of John's arc is like this hero's journey like yeah he's like a typical protagonist in a story yeah but in a darker setting <laughs> yeah like he's a frodo of the lord of the rings he's like a frodo character uh hero journey tropey but it's it's not really like the the trope is good with john because it's so unexpected um with how his story begins like he's so far away from everything that's going on and then it's all gonna land right in his lap and i i really besides daenerys i can't think of anyone better for the job like the, i agree i can't and it it really works in his story because the way george does it it's like it's seen as like very human i'm like you know like a lot of hero stories they come off as a little too perfect. Yes. Like neither John or Danny come off as too perfect. They make mistakes and they they learn from them. Yeah, that's the thing about um, A Song of Ice and Fire is it's so realistic. And like you said, it George does a lot to humanize his characters. It, from, from the Jamie Lannisters to the Cersei's, John, Daenerys, all of them, there's a lot that feels very real about them and a lot of people relate to these characters so much because they have parts 
of something that you might have in you. You know what I mean? Like with some kind of characteristic that you have of yourself, you might see in this person, even though it's a fantasy story in a fantasy setting, it feels like they could be real people. You're right. And even the situations, it feel like, you know, if you take away the fantasy, you can kind of apply them to real life. For example, like John is being mean to like the other recruits. And while they are terrible people, he has to work with these guys and he's going to be living with them for as far as he know it, the rest of his life. So it's probably not a good idea to antagonize them and be a jerk. And you can apply that to real life. Like at work, you don't want to be a jerk to your coworkers. Right. Uh, of course, like these are people that you have to interact with every day. Cause I like, I've had situations where I've wanted to say some shit to my coworkers and I'm like, <laughs> you know, I have to come to work here tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. So I might as well just not say anything because right, it's going to be get bad. <laughs> right. This is going to be <laughs> uncomfortable from here on out. So Toad called John's mother a whore and John's like, um, Lord Eddard Stark was not a man to sleep with whores. And Donald Noy's like, well, okay, uh, young young fella, but he it didn't stop him from having a bastard. So basically he slept with somebody that wasn't his wife. And um, John is like, my mother, not my mother. Like when, so when they're telling John, like his mother could be a whore, he's like, not my mother. Like she, he knows that his mother is not a whore. Yeah. And he describes her like, I've seen her in my dreams. Yes. Beautiful. I born with kind eyes. Yes. Liana Stark. <laughs> <laughs> so it, and it, it's foreshadowing that John's likely there's something going on it's it's nothing concrete enough to say you know this is a clue for this but it's definitely a hint at something going on with john's parentage yeah like a possibility that you know he's just not you know your everyday bastard right and another thing i like in this chapter is that we talked about it a little earlier is that they kind of bring john they kind of bring john back to earth (laughs) like you know I, he's like, I'm I'm better than all of them or whatever. And um, Donald Noy's like, mm, not all of them are lords from a castle, from some castle in the north or or any castle. So these are, John learns that his brothers of the Night's Watch are basically uh, rapers, <laughs> uh, thieves, murderers. They're not the Lord, the sons of lords. These are um, basically criminals. It's ba- the wall is basically like a life sentence jail, kind of, that's made out of ice. Pretty much. And it's also, it's, I, I felt like John was being a bit unfair. Of course, the rapers are terrible people, but for example, look at the thieves. Maybe they were stealing the feet of their families. Like, there could be a context to it. Yeah, see, he doesn't know. Like, he's so naive when it comes to what life is really like for other people because although yes john is a bastard he hasn't always been treated nice by lady catlin no he hasn't always been included in things that he might want to be included in but at the same time you grew up in a castle (laughs) you you had uh Uh, teachers and trainers and you never had to want for a meal you never had to find a bed to sleep in. Like these people come from a very different life than you do. And John is kind of naive to that because the world that John knows is inside the walls of Winterfell. Like he's never, I mean, I'm sure he's been to a castle or two, but he's never been to a place like where he is now. And, and really there, there's no place like where he is now in all of Westeros. Mm-hmm. And like, that's an issue with, like we said before, like all the Stark, they see the world through these rose tinted glasses. Like there's people starving, you know, right outside your castle probably. Yeah. And, and I will say like, to me, if John did stay at Castle Black and never 
like ventured beyond the wall. John venturing beyond the wall and spending time with the wildlings, I feel like really bettered him. Um, not just like um, bettered him because he got like some type of survival skills or something, but bettered him as a person because he now sees like the struggles of the common people, even wildlings, like you see how they live, you experience their culture. And it's a, it's kind of similar when you think about Daenerys. Um, I was just about to say that. It's kind of like a <laughs> reflection of the two. Yes, with the Dothraki and her intermingling, joining the culture, not like fighting against it, like Viserys. Like it's, it so, speaks so much to their characters. And Jon and Daenerys have a lot of parallels. And Bran also parallels with them too, as well. But if we got into that, <laughs> we'd be, two <laughs> we'd be here all night. Yes, we'd be here all night. I won't hold you up all night. But, <laughs> so the, I want to real quickly talk about the wall itself. Um, just a random question. Do, what is your favorite theory about the wall? Like who built I, it, what it's made? Like what's your favorite one? I, my favorite theory is pretty much that everyone came together, the giants, the first men, pretty much everyone after the long night, they came together. And it's like, it was like a great work of magic that they created together. I, I mean, I kind of agree with that. Like, that's one of my favorites. I, I also like the thoughts of the children of the forest, just like swirling that snow up together <laughs> and packing that wall. I, I definitely think that it's magical, but it kind of does seem like it was more than magic and probably the giants and the first men played a part in it because of like the black gate at the night fort that definitely gives off like mm -hmm. more vibes you know more vibes than just magic itself yeah but i also I wonder if like besides you know in a song like fire my magic's not like this completely happy thing all the time I wonder if there were any human sacrifice going yes. on. <laughs> I bet there were. Like, I bet there were human sacrifices. Because in the world book, like it says, when the children broke the arm of Dorne, which was a big act of magic, which I would think breaking the arm of Dorne would be similar to building the wall. Like, that kind of magic would be similar. Mm -hmm. Because it's so big. It's such a massive wall. Um it said there that they sacrificed rumor is that they sacrificed a thousand captives or a thousand of their own young like their own mm -hmm. kids they were they were that desperate that's quite telling about the situation they were in <laughs> when you're ready to sacrifice your own people right especially children and and they don't even have that many like they were a dying race yeah, like, so their numbers were already dwindling, and, like, that's a tough choice. Your numbers are already bad, and you're like, all right, we're going to sacrifice our children, which is our future, right. for the future of the whole race. Exactly. And like, we see where that ended. <laughs> exactly. And Men were shady for that, <laughs> and then the Andals. Oh, the first men are super shady. Like, I don't understand um, the first men they came there like to me they're like a viking kind of um mm -hmm. like that's who i relate them to like the vikings of real world history and like they just came there with their horses and just raided and cut trees down and just did whatever and then the andals were even worse than the first men but the first we don't really know what really happened with the first men because the history is so like in shadow yeah and with the andals we don't really know what's true because the victors always write their self in a good light so we don't know exactly what happened but yeah they were petty as hell for that shady <laughs> and i don't know why the children ever forgave them i think they forgave them i always saw it as a you know kind of like a native american kind of the thing like they outnumber us they have these weapons we can't fight we can't fight them they'll kill us so it's kind of like let's work with them out of you know no choice yeah that 
and that sounds accurate <laughs> i mean because I mean, what like, would they do because they were basically too powerful they didn't have enough they were so outnumbered pretty much like the old saying goes if you can't beat them join them and that's why i really believe that the children of the forest i know like in the show it 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 said the children of the forest made the white walkers and it's never we don't know in the books but i really think that that came from george because if you look at how white walkers are made Mm -hmm. white walkers are made from the dead of the people that the children were fighting so that automatically boosts the children's numbers that's true but it's also i feel like the others themselves are something different like a bit separate from the uh children of the forest like they are like a weapon that they lost control of honestly i always saw them as a different race because oh, like a like completely there's a different diff- entity like they don't have anything to do with each other yeah like for example like the others they're kind of like you know this inhuman race I always saw them as being their own thing but the uh the whites that you know are kind of basically reanimated corpses mm-hmm. I feel like uh that's a magic that's kind of similar in every so-called religion in yeah. a song like the fire like for example now we have fire whites mm-hmm. and all the magic seems to come from one source right like yeah, I feel like there's no gods like it's just like everyone thinks there's gods, but they're just using magic themselves. Right. That's true. Like, I agree with that. I don't think any of the gods are real. I think it's all magic. It's all smoke and mirrors. And it's all like a, manip- a manipulation tactic for... I don't want to say it's a manipulation tactic for the powers that be, like in Westeros, because I do believe that to a certain extent, like some people really believe in the faith of the seven. Some people really believe in the old gods. But far as we know from what we've been presented, the old gods aren't real. The old, the first men were praying to the weirwoods and the green seers were seeing those prayers through the trees and trying to help. Yeah. And I also... The reason they probably cut them, because we know green seers just weren't humans. There were green seers amongst the children of the forest as well. Right. And it makes me wonder if the first men that were green seers, I wonder if there were, you know, some intermingling force or not amongst with the children of the forest. A hundred percent. I definitely agree. Like, I definitely think that that is the case because in the world of ice and fire, we get that um, story about the warg king, um, which we don't really know like who he is, where he's from, but we know he's a warg. And we know that the Stark in Winterfell kidnapped his daughters. And that's likely how the green seer children of the forest blood got mingled with the blood of the Starks. Mm-hmm. it's actually interesting when you look at it, the Starks kind of have a dark history oh super dark super dark everybody like, loves to talk about house Targaryen this house Targaryen that but the Starks history is dark as shit like they're one of the darkest families <laughs> in Westeros <laughs> yes like they were sacrificing people to the weirwoods the the great or the knight's king is believed to have been a Stark. Um, and he yeah, was Stark like... Stark bastard. <laughs> yeah, Stark bastard. So like, and then you have Theon Stark that like went over to Andalos and put all those heads on spikes along the coast. Like they've done some shit. Yeah, and like people, like you said, they love to demonize the Targaryen, but pretty much any noble family, they're not saints. How right. do you think they got where they stand? <laughs> right, it's just because the Targaryens have dragons. So they they take that as, oh, it's too overpowered, like they have these dragons. But like if any of these houses had these dragons, they would do the same thing because a lot of times that's just the nature of man. And there's exactly a good- Exactly, like, 
Like but, they complain about uh, the Targaryens having dragons, but how do you think the children of the forest felt when you guys ran through them with your huge numbers, weapons they probably never seen before? Right. They had leaves and twigs and shit, and here they come with bronze weapons and iron right. weapons, like, outnumbering so them, them like five to one. But you guys were dragons to them. <laughs> right. Exactly amazing analogy i love that but yeah that's basically you know in a nutshell what it is so so talk about that little uh vision or imagination john had of benjamin Benjamin, yes let me get the quote let me get the quote I remembered the things that Tyrion Lannister told him on the King's Road, and in his mind's eye, he saw Ben Stark lying dead, his blood red on the snow. The thought made him sick. What was he becoming? Afterward, he sought out Ghost in the loneliness of his cell and buried his face in his thick white fur. So, <laughs> and and you said he mentions that again, right? Yeah, he mentions it again uh, when he talks to Tyrion later on in the chapter. Like, he sees uh, Benjen lying dead in the snow in his own blood. Yeah, I definitely think that's foreshadowing. It has to be. Because we know that Benjen never comes back. Now, there are a lot that we don't know exactly where he is or if he's dead, if he's alive. I really think that Benjen is cold hands. I know George R. R. Martin supposedly answered that question for someone and said no he wasn't cold hands but in the show he was a ver- like an undead benjen and we know the people he left with are dead yeah we know for a fact they're dead <laughs> <laughs> right and it's funny because it's like does john have some kind of green sight is that some kind of like thing sent to him via blood raven or something because it's so on the nose I wouldn't be surprised as it is. Honestly, I feel like John, magic-wise, he's probably the second most powerful in the Stark family after Bran. Yeah, he is. He, and I think it probably has to do a mix with like he has the Stark blood, but he also has the blood of the dragon as well. So he has very a very powerful ancestry, and I also think. Um, he also has the blood of like his grandmother was a Dane. So he has house Dane blood. And I think he has house Blackwood blood too. So he has mm-hmm. like the blood of all of these magical houses, like Dane, Blackwood, Targaryen, and Stark. Like, like he's the <laughs> perfect magical mix. <laughs> yes. Perfect magical man. But you know something that kind of scares me? Because that also sets him up to be the perfect sacrifice it really no it really does which is i've been thinking about like it how the how does this thing end right so what i like to think about is with john like with john's resurrection will john be like Beric? will john be like lady stoneheart will he be something in between or will he be something completely different because of his magical bloodline and then if he dies and comes back is he sacrificed again <laughs> i wouldn't be surprised if in, in the story he, since we do know you know he has you know the typical fit tropey fairy tale story in a sense I wouldn't be surprised if he sacrificed his life like the hero in the story and saves everyone. Oh, I would love it. I would love it if he sacrificed his life as long as he doesn't kill Daenerys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't want to see that. That was some bullshit. <laughs> we don't want to relive it, George. If I get that in the book, I'm throwing that book out the window. Yes, me too. All of it all the books all the posters all everything got to go <laughs> you know, oh yeah since we we're talking about bidgin i saw a theory and i i was like you know what? i don't see it happening but i always wondered what if bidgin has you know some bastards out there beyond the wall i would love it i would love it because the starks like like we were saying they're so like above 
everybody they're so on this pedestal i would love for them to have bastards i would love for benjamin good old benjamin stark to have a couple bastards beyond the wall it's something we probably never know like i'm pretty sure um brandon stark has a couple bastards in westeros <laughs> probably right outside of winterfell <laughs> in right. the village he probably got he's worse than robert he probably has like kids in every uh kingdom <laughs> That's so funny. I've always wondered how Robert and Brandon would have gotten along if he was sent to the Erie. Right. They'd have been the best of pals. They'd have had all kinds of STDs and everything. They'd have been like <laughs> King, King Henry VIII. <laughs> uh, it's a good thing Brandon wasn't sitting there because that would have been that would have been a hot mess. We yes. already know they're both hot-headed. Who knows what they would have did. That would have been, oh my god. I I... I struggle imagining Brandon Stark with Catelyn Stark. I don't know. It would be so miserable. I just feel like it would be a Cersei Robert relationship. Right. I feel like she would turn to Cersei. Yeah, a hundred percent. She'd be a killing bastards type of lady. Right. Because like you see how she treated John, and that was just one, and he was born before. Uh, Ned had even met like they were even together oh I know I know <laughs> so like could you imagine if like someone was having kids on her left and right years later <laughs> left and right and by high ladies because it would have it would have been like pretty young virgins because that's what he liked mm-hmm. well didn't he uh nothing as beautiful as a bloody sword yes nasty <laughs> so uh, let's he must have been a charmer though because he had lady dustin thinking he was about to marry her yes i i was reading a lady dustin chapter or a theon chapter the other day and lady dustin was carrying on about ned's bones and i'm just like girl that man has been dead for 16 years let it go let right. it go I swear she's Hetty LaBelle. She is. She's all over it. She's all over it. She's like, that must have been some good stuff. Because <laughs> he's been gone. He is dead. This is like, you can't bring him back from dead. And you're still pressed over him? Jeez. Exactly. I guess Ruth wasn't saying, I mean, Ruth wasn't lying when he said she knows how to nurse the grieving. Oh, yes, she does. She's nursed that one for 16 years. Like, I couldn't imagine holding a grudge for six months. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like, um, there's a quote about it. Uh, it's like you drinking the poison and hoping the other person dies. <laughs> like holding a grudge. But basically, it just does more harm to you than the other person. Exactly. Like, move on with your life. You had a new husband. Like, come on now. Yeah. And it, and like, even if you hated your husband, he died and you pretty much had free reign of the castle. Right. You're doing whatever you big enough to do, whatever you want like, to do. Like, you know how many bones. women, <laughs> like how many women in Westeros probably would kill for that? Yes. Uh, thousands. Thousands of all of them probably because they are all in like arranged marriages and don't like their husband. Right? Like, she, she she controls her money. She has control of her body. She doesn't have to sleep with anyone unless she wants to. Like, you got a pretty good life, all things considered. She does what she wants far as in, like, even with the Starks, like, when Rob goes to war, she sends, like, this token force. Like, she doesn't send all of her men. She doesn't send even half of her men. She's like, oh, I'm just going to send them enough so they can just not suspect me of hating them. Mm-hmm. And that was always strange to me because I understand if, you know, you're kind of like, you know, the second family, like, you know, Ruth Bolton, like the second most powerful, you have a chance of taking over. I see the point in being strategic, but when you're kind of, you know, lower on the wrong, you should probably want to be loyal because if they lose, it might not end well for you. Right. Right. And I mean, they, the Starks did lose, right? And then 
now Lady uh, Dustin is all like in that Grand Northern conspiracy with Wyman Manderley and all of those people where they hate the Boltons and want to pay the Boltons back for the Red Wedding. So like in the end, it didn't work out for her anyway. Right? Just she's not the smartest crayon or smartest. <laughs> she's not the brightest light bulb. Definitely not. <laughs> the That's an issue a lot of character has in the song Ice and Fire. Everyone thinks there's this there's there they uh, there's this political genius. Yes. And reality is just messing up like they're doing the dumbest things. And they expect other people to be playing by their rules. And there really are no rules. Like that's the first rule of Game of Thrones. There are none. None of these people <laughs> are following rules. Right? Like, that's Ned's problem. He thinks everyone's going to act with honor. And, like, that's not going to happen. These people are in it to win it. Yeah. They are. And, you know, uh, one thing I really like about this chapter is that Tyrion and John. a lot of John's chapters and Tyrion's chapters so far have been showing, like, this relationship that's being built and it, when you think about John, like John isn't the smartest light bulb. Or he's not the brightest light bulb either. But Tyrion <laughs> is though. Like Tyrion, out of all of the characters in the books, Tyrion has this political mind. He understands the Game of Thrones. And I really like his chapters because you get a, a understanding of the actual game that's being played. And that's another reason like season eight of game of thrones like why did they make Tyrion so stupid because that's not Tyrion. like Tyrion is not an idiot Tyrion I felt like advised daenerys to do some of the things that show Tyrion advised daenerys to do i felt like they had to make i'm not not making excuses for them but they had to make him dumb because otherwise they would have just ran over everyone which they should have that's true but i guess they were like oh we want we need to drag out the story but you know and see, they all the, and the, and that's the problem with like leaving a like leaving the other Aegon out uh Fagon, because when daenerys arrives to westeros she's not just gonna be opposing cersei like she's not she's gonna there's there's like euron and euron is way more of the Andrew. backstreet boy <laughs> pirate of game of thrones like Euron is dangerous. He is Honestly, magical and he's the most dangerous player on the board that Daenerys he can is. face. Euron scares me. <laughs> he scares me. <laughs> like, there's something really twisted about him. Any man that would rape his brothers, both of them several times, there's something wrong with him. And kill him. Yeah, and he killed him. Like, who does that? your brothers like that he is he is um terribly scary and then like in that chapter of the winds of winter where like he got with that girl he got her pregnant and then he cut off her tongue and tied her to the mast of his ship yeah like i feel like he has no boundaries and like no remorse like he was for example uh, like going back to his brothers he was i feel like he was mocking them like he was like oh i always wonder were you praying i choose you and I was like, wow. Or, or praying I'd pass you by. Like, what the fuck? He's so sick and twisted. Um, Book Euron is like villain. Straight the devil. villain. Yeah, straight the <laughs> devil. But that's what I'm saying. Like, when Daenerys comes to Westeros, she's going to have to deal with Euron. She's going to have to deal with Cersei. She's going to have to deal with Fagon. She's going to have to deal yep. with whatever's going on in the North. So it's not going to be a... Uh, a thing where they're gonna have to dumb people down in order to make it interesting pretty much it's gonna be like everyone's jumping her yeah that's basically what's gonna be she's gonna be in one thing after another and, and because she won't know who's friend and who's foe exactly exactly she's, she's a queen she's beautiful she has power like Sagon and euron are both going to want her yeah and I think and, Jon Snow is going to also be a factor, too. Mm -hmm. I hate to, like, bring up the show, but I do feel like they are 
a match perfect for each yeah other. their stories parallel so much and like they have like the same kind of values in a sense like they each want like a just they see the world they, how i see it is when they meet they they know the world isn't perfect but they want the world to be just and they each have the they'll have the power to try and make that change yeah i mean i totally see that i wonder like how dark john is going to be upon resurrection but i definitely think that the john snow that we have that sees the injustice in the world and the daenerys that sees the injustice in the world and wants to work with like john wants to save people and daenerys wants to save people a lot of their core values are the same and sure they have like different things that they value but at their core like the empathy that they both have for less fortunate people john daenerys has always kind of had it but john forms it yeah after living with the wildlings and yes. seeing how they live because the wildlings have a, have an unfair like an unfair hand in life Oh, totally. The wall went up and they were on the wrong side of it. That's, that's And it's really crazy because there's plenty of space in the north for them. Yes. Plenty. The north is so big and not populated at all. It's just... In the books, though, because the northerners and the wildlings, they do have a lot in common. Yeah, they do. They're like the same... They're they're first men, like they say it. That my I'm the blood of the first men, just like you. Like they they had and they worship the same gods. They uh, with the children of the forest. They're said to trade with the children of the forest. They're very in touch with who they are, and that's the same thing with the Starks. So I, it's just to me, it's just ignorance. It's just ignorance, and like the years have gone by i mean i'm sure the wildlings probably don't want to be in the north to be honest because i wouldn't like if you're living free mm-hmm. and you don't have to worry about paying taxes or following these laws that these men have laid down for you then i would totally choose to be a wildling i agree I, like honestly i feel like overall like in uh, happiness the wildlings before you know obviously before the white walkers yeah they were happier than you know majority of the like the like the servants and peasants right probably even noblemen right they're not up there playing the game of thrones they're living off the land being free like craster seems to be happy with his lifestyle (laughs) and all his wives and incestuous daughter wives or whatever he seems to be just fine and he kind of rubs it in their face when they come to his house Mm-hmm. But the chapter ends off with John going to talk to the Lord Commander Mormont, and we get introduced to the prophetic Raven, um, Lord Mormont's Raven. Totally a prophetic character, dropping hints and clues and dimes on everybody in the story. Um, but John finds out that Bran is going to live, but that he is crippled. And I like that John, I like that after John has had this like terrible start that at the end of his chapter, he gets some good news. And even though it's bad news, he doesn't even care because his brother's going to live. Exactly. I feel like anyone that loves their family would react the same, like, yeah, it's some drawbacks, but hey, you get to live. Right. So the crow says, live, live. And we know that, well, we don't know. I suspect that Blood Raven is in that crow a lot of times. Um, And a crow, some crow, I believe it was Blood Raven, had just told Bran, fly or die. And Bran, I'm sorry, this dog. And Bran was like, live, or and and the crow going live 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 definitely seems to me as some foreshadowing that that crow and the same crow that was messing with Bran in his coma dream are connected. Yeah, I agree. 
it all like speaking of that it, like outside of the context just reading that part it's funny because sometimes a song a song that's on fire you don't think of any magic and reading this chapter you know at first john's chapter doesn't have any magic mm-hmm. and i was just like is this crow talking <laughs> yes and is john getting visions of the future yeah i was like oh okay yeah i'm back in the fantasy world now <laughs> yes i'm telling you like the fantasy i love that i can't say it enough i love that about a song of ice and fire that it is a realistic story that has fantasy popping its head in every now and then yeah like and it just catches off guard and it makes it, it, I feel like that makes it even better because, you know, it's just not in your face all the time. Yeah. It, it makes magic feel more special to me. Yeah. It, I mean, and it's like you experience the magic, right? Like, you know how sometimes you can read a story or watch a movie and you're, you just are like thrust into this magical world that's already been built around magic. This world is different than that. You're thrust into a world that's different and then you see this magic come to life. It's like an an experience. Yeah. It's kind of like you, like your ghost watching everything in front of you. You're there and as a ghost. (laughs) Yes. But my overall thoughts on this chapter, it's not a very long chapter. I would say it's just that John is entering a hard, hard life. And he's been lied to. The person that he's probably been taught not to trust, like I'm sure Ned Stark has grumpled all around the house about Lannisters not being good people. That is the person that actually gave him the hard truth. And I think John will, we know John later really appreciates that. And that friendship is being built chapter after chapter after after chapter. And that definitely means that it's going to come back around. That friendship is going to come back around. I do agree that it's going to come back around, but I can't help but wonder, will it be positive? Because they're going to be completely different people when they meet. That I wonder the same thing, like how, how will it be? Will, because we know that John's dead and he died in the last book. So we have this cliffhanger where we don't know what John is going to be like, but we know that George R.R. Martin has said that Barrick and Lady Stoneheart are foreshadowing for John. And we also know that any character that's died and been brought back doesn't have a pov chapter like barrack doesn't have a pov chapter and catlin hasn't had a pov chapter as lady stoneheart so will we even get inside john's head and one of the things that barrack does is he loses his memories like he he can't remember who his wife is can't remember what she looks like things like that so i wonder like how much of what happened in a game of thrones john three or what happened in john two and all of the interaction that john has with Tyrion, i wonder how much of that he's going to actually retain i actually think he's going to have a good grasp compared to barrett because barrett has been killed more times right than john has and like even using lady stoneheart like she's not exactly what we call sane but she has she an remembers. idea what's going on. Yeah, she, she remembers what happened. She knows she's like she's hell bent on killing the phrase and the Lannisters, anybody that had anything to do with the Red Wedding. So yeah, I definitely. And I don't think oh. she's crazy, honestly. Like Lady Stoneheart, like that she's being kind of reasonable when you think about it. Like, oh yeah, <laughs> somebody kills your family, of course you're gonna come back and be savage a hundred percent i would love to see her link up with john i would love to see them two reunited and what kind of conversation an undead john and an undead catelyn would have that would be i i see it as being catelyn would be either super salty and be like of course the bastard gets to live or (laughs) she would have a slight change of heart and be mildly happy to see someone that's, you know, from a right. friendlier time. Right. I, I, I wonder how that would 
go down because we know she ain't never like him before. But yeah, this was our first introduction to Lord Mormont. Seems like a good guy. And Donald Noyle, Donnell Noyle, Noyle. <laughs> Why is his name such a tongue twister? Donald Noyle, <laughs> Noy, <laughs> Noy. <a> weird name. <laughs> and Donald Noy, he, we didn't talk about him too much, but he's actually from Storm's End. Um, he, he knows all about Stannis, knows all about Robert, knows all about Renly. And I mean, that isn't really much to talk about on that, like, unless we want to be like picky. But yeah, it, I definitely think he's an interesting character. Though. He is. He's a very like interesting he's character. lived an interesting life. Yeah, he has. And like the the stuff that he helps John with, like he gives John real knowledge. And it's crazy because the two people that have, or the people that have looked out for John the most are people that aren't from his house. They, they aren't yep. uh, his uncle. They aren't his dad. They're just his brothers in black. And that's a, like a hard concept that John is going to have to come. Like, like you're saying, John still misses his real brothers, but he doesn't, these are his real brothers now. And yeah, that's your brothers. Right. <laughs> They're your brothers for now. That's you the might concept. never see your brothers again. Right. That's the concept he has to get his mind around. And I think John having Ghost there with him is definitely helpful. Because that's a piece of home. There's this uh this quote that I couldn't help but chuckle at because I was just like, John is so dramatic. It goes pretty much like Donald Noy is like, you're, I've watched you in the field. You're a bastard and a bully. And then John is like, it's so unjust. It took his breath away. And I was just like, really? <laughs> <laughs> that is dramatic. It's so unjust. I was, I was like, so unjust. I'm like, John, all right, you being dramatic now. Come on. <laughs> yes, 100%. A person would probably react like that if someone was calling them out. <laughs> Yeah, and it it also goes to show how sheltered he really is that he thinks that is unjust (laughs) out of all the things he's seen. Like, you just saw your father cut a man's head off that the man looks half insane. He cut his head off, and you didn't find any injustice in that. Right, but some name calling is unjust. Yes, uh, he's ad- Oh, yes. I actually wanted to bring up uh, this this quote. Um, it's about the wall, actually. Um, it's about John's pretty much his perspective on the wall. He says, It was older than the Seven Kingdoms, and when he stood beneath it and looked up, it made John dizzy. He could feel the great weight of all the ice pressing down on him, and as if it were about to topple. And somehow John knew that if it fell, the world fell with it. Mm, I just got the chills. That is totally foreshadowing (laughs) that the White Walkers are going to bring down the wall. I have thought they're going to bring it down. I I agree. I think it's going to be brought down in the final war. But I don't think it's going to be brought down with a dead dragon reanimated. I can tell you that. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like that was just so unimaginative. Yeah. No, I, do, I think it's going to be brought down with some kind of horn or some kind of magic, some kind of something. But mm-hmm. it, the wall is very important to Westeros, even though Westeros has forgotten uh, what the it threat. means. Yeah, the threat. They, yeah. They're basically like, oh, these stories, these stories aren't real. Yeah, and it, it even shows in this chapter how everyone has forgotten how important it is. Because I believe it says it holds no defenses to the South because none of that is important. Right, right. And that's one of the overall themes of the story, right? Is that these lords are all fighting these wars that don't really matter. The war like, that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, the war that really matters is in the North. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, you're king, but what happens when the real threat comes and kills you and we're all dead? Right. Right. I mean, that's basically the, the Night's Watches keep warning the South, we need 
money. We need supplies. We need more men. And they're just ignoring it. All of it's going on deaf ears because they want to fight these endless wars of the Game of Thrones when, like you said, when the long night comes, it doesn't matter who sits on the Iron Throne. But it would be good if it's Daenerys. <laughs> as is just, as anything in the world is just, our great queen. <laughs> yes. But I'm wanna... not going to go crazy and kill oh, everybody. No, totally not. But I want to thank you for coming on. Um, let the people know where they can find you one more time. And I'll definitely leave the links in the description. Perfect. All right, guys, you can find me on Twitter at rentware. That's just ordinary rent and then wear. W and I wanted to thank you guys for listening and I will see you next week. All Bye right. guys.